Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, Masal Khair. On behalf of the NYUAD Institute and the program in Arab Crossroads Studies, I'm pleased to welcome Professor Martin Stokes to New York University Abu Dhabi for tonight's lecture, The Musical Citizen. This is the fourth talk in a series of talks called Art and Performance in the Middle East, Past and Present. Professor Stokes obtained his doctorate from Oxford University and taught at the Queen's University of Belfast, the University of Chicago, and again at Oxford before joining King's College in 2012, where he is the King Edward Professor of Music. This professorship is aptly titled, given Martin's magisterial reputation in the fields of the anthropology of music and ethnomusicology. He is a leading figure in the study of the popular musics of the Middle East, the special focus on Turkey, and he is also a cutting edge social theorist of the interrelationships among globalization, place, affect, statecraft, and musical practice. What sets Martin Stokes apart from so many is not only his generosity of spirit, great sense of humor, and modesty, which are evident to all who know him, but the fact that he is a first-rate scholar of music and at the same time a first-rate musician. He therefore combines the best in the critical study of music making as a scholar performer, bringing the insights of cross-cultural musical performance practice, what Mantle Hood called bimusicality, to theorizing about musical practice and also bringing the insights of the scholar to his role as a performer. This is amply evident in his groundbreaking research on the popular Turkish genre known as arabesque, which he published in his influential book, The Arabesque Debate, Music and Musicians in Modern Turkey from 1992, as well as in his follow-up study of Turkish icon Zeki Muren, Orhan Gencebe, and pop diva Sezen Aksu, and their roles in fashioning affective regimes in Turkey, which explored in the award-winning The Republic of Love, Cultural Intimacy in Turkish Popular Music from 2010. He has also published fascinating essays on Turkish star Bilet Ersoy and Egyptian crooner Abdul Halim Hafiz, as well as edited and co-edited several volumes on music and identity, all of them important works. His work has also, is also influential in Turkey, where it has been translated into Turkish. As a performer, Chicagoans would have heard his thundering organ playing, as well as enjoyed his leadership of a variety of ensembles and musical initiatives from the University of Chicago's Middle Eastern Music Ensemble and with Aisa Bulos, Radio Makam. Stokes is also a key member of the important group Oxford Makam as Kanunji in residence. Oxford Makam brings together like-minded scholar performers to present concerts of Middle Eastern Makam-based musics of the 19th and 20th centuries. They've performed worldwide, including in the UAE, but alas, not yet here at NYU Abu Dhabi, although I emphasize the yet. We'll get him here. His teachers on a variety of instruments have included such noted players as Tunjai Gulersoy, Ibrahim John, Yawuz Top, Simon Shaheen, Marcel Khalife, George Sawa, Ali Jihad Rasi, Isa Bulos, and Maya Youssef, amongst many others. Martin, we welcome you for what we know will be an inspired evening together. And our only regret is that we cannot have you here with us in person. Note that the talk will be followed by a live Q&A. Audience members are invited to submit their questions and comments in the Q&A box at the bottom of the Zoom screens. Thank you very much, and please join me in welcoming Martin Stokes. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for that uh, very kind and very warm uh, introduction. I, I had indeed forgotten um, quite what a complicated life I lead. Um, very good of you to invite me here, and my thanks uh, to you and to Nahed Ahmed um, for this very kind invitation. We were talking about it uh, quite a while ago, uh, I think, um, even before uh, COVID. Is it possible that it was before COVID? Um, at one point, I think there was the prospect of coming to actually uh, visit you and be sitting amongst you today and having this uh, conversation with you in the flesh. Um, but of course, uh, it's not to be. Hopefully, there, indeed, there will be an, an, another occasion. Um, so I can't uh, see you all. Um, but I hope that despite the extremely strange and difficult circumstances of the moment that you are all um, happy and well and in and in good health. And thanks to, to Maurice Pomerantz of the Arab Crossroad Programme uh, for co-sponsoring uh, this event. I'm going to talk uh, for about 40 minutes about uh, the, the musical citizen, as my title indicates. I should start off by saying that uh, after all of these months, I'm, I'm still uh, not fully on top of Zoom as a mode of communication. Um, so please forgive me, um, strange stoppings and startings. I'm sure I'm not the only person. Um, and of course, uh, I'm aware that it's rather strange uh, being on uh, the receiving end of these kind of talks as well. But one uh, key uh, aspect of Zoom uh, etiquette is that the, the old-fashioned uh, uh, one-hour talk is, is, uh, is kept um, firmly um, under control um, and indeed um, should be curtailed. It seems to me that the, the kind of Zoom um, um, frame of concentration is about 40 minutes. So after 40 minutes, I'll come to, uh, you, you'll excuse me if I come to perhaps a fairly uh, abrupt uh, halt um, and allow some time for conversations and questions. I'm just, of course, very interested to to hear your, your comments and, and anything um, that you might uh, have to say. So let me start off by putting a um screen up sorry i thought i'd read it on this and at this point uh, you should be able to see my um, my slideshow and I can't see any of you at this point but uh, hopefully if there are any problems with this you'll you'll let me know so for those of us in the western art music tradition those of us who've grown up in the western art music tradition the the question of the musical 
citizen, the, the, the idea of the citizen composer is highly cliched and is associated, of course, with the, with the figure of Beethoven. Um, so for those of us who are encountering Beethoven as young teenagers learning the piano or the violin or whatever it is that we are learning, this is where um, those of us in the Western classical music tradition and the Western art music tradition, um, I think, start to learn to think about the relationship between music and politics. Um, and of course, we all know the story, or we all come to know at this very early age, the mythical story, because it is indeed a myth of the dedication of the Eroica uh, Symphony, the Third Symphony to Napoleon, and then the subsequent tearing of it up. So Beethoven lies at the heart of a very uh, intense field of uh, symbols uh, connecting music to citizenship and citizenship to music. If you were to, as I did yesterday, simply Google uh, Beethoven citizen, uh, what confronts you what meets the eye uh, on the screen is a scene of the the purest how can i put it the purest semiotic chaos something has happened to this sign of musical citizenship and in no particular uh, order or with no particular selectivity i would note on the left of the screen here the uh, the this kind of crowd of images associated with the uh, with the 200-year celebrations of Beethoven uh, in Bonn. If ever there's a sign of crisis of the sign, if ever there's an indication of the of, of the of, of pressure on a sign, it's either, of course, expanding this sign to vast proportions or uh, a kind of mass producing it and multiplying it in enormous numbers. At the top uh, right of the screen, uh, the image of black Beethoven was Beethoven black. Um, at the bottom of the screen there, Beethoven, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, sigh, uh, says, as I recall, Schroeder with his uh, rather intense fascination with uh, Beethoven beautifully captured in that image, an image that, as you'll recall, means that uh, his, uh, the, that the uh, attentions of, of Lucy are, um, go unheeded. So have a, a search on Beethoven Citizen and one pretty quickly gets the idea um, of the, the pressure um, on this uh, image in Western musical culture of the citizen composer. I think that pressure becomes uh, rather more obvious uh, if we are to consider um, one of a, a number of, of case studies about citizen composers and their posthumous legacy, because of course the the the, the, the uh, sign of the citizen composer uh, becomes well, the citizen as composer becomes a sign posthumously, and after death, um, I think that's an interesting thing to note and observe here. But the case of Cherubini is uh, is quite. An interesting one. Um, the Italian uh, conductor uh, Riccardo Muzzi recently mounted a campaign to exhume uh, Cherubini, who it lies buried in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. 
he was buried there in 1844. And to have him reinterred in Cherubini's place of birth, which was in Florence. Now, Italy, as you're aware, united only in 1861, has been peculiarly dependent upon retrospective acts of claiming its widely scattered dead as citizens. Just as it claims its plundered uh, artworks, not entirely without justification as national heritage. The case of Cherubini involves uh, considerable ironies, um, as various people commenting on this case have noted. Cherubini survived revolution and terror in France by various strokes of good fortune and somehow managed to navigate the fraught cultural politics of the post-revolutionary period, ending up indeed on the staff of the new National Conservatoire. Now, he may have been lucky, but he had all sorts of reasons to be extremely grateful to France. For all of its subsequent qualifications, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen of 1789 enabled Carabini, along with other immigrants who had married or set up business in France, to acquire French citizenship, a unique opportunity in Europe at the time. He had expressed no particular desire to return to Italy least of all to be buried there. So this is quite an interesting story. Um, Muti's campaign failed. It was unsupported by any efforts on Ricardo Muti's part to champion Carabini's music or to associate this campaign to to move uh, Carabini's body uh, back to Italy with um, kind of musical festivals or revivals of, of any sorts. And one finds oneself reflecting on the fact that Carabini might well serve uh, dead and silent um, as um, a kind of useful sign um, in a populist cause uh, the, the, the cause was momentarily taken up by Salvini and his likes in Italy. But the moment that one starts to consider the composer's music, the sound of the composer's music, the legacy of Cherubini's composition, of course, the matter becomes an extremely complicated one. Uh, Cherubini's music was French um, through and through to reclaim Carabini as an Italian citizen makes very little sense in musical terms. Add to this consideration of the populist context of this, um, of the small argument and debate that took uh, place around him, and once introducing uh, into the equation here all sorts of complicated considerations about migrants, how migrants gain citizenship, the contribution of migrants to national culture. And pretty quickly, the case of Carabini starts to become, in the populist context of a couple of years ago when this issue came up, it starts to become a complicated and, and inconvenient one. If one's to look Outside of Europe, one starts to get a slightly different perspective on this matter. Within Europe, I would want to suggest that the composer or the musician as the sign of citizenship, the, the entanglement of, of the, um, the, the affects of citizenship, the, the signs of citizenship with the figure of the musician, the voice of the musician, if in Europe these have become complicated and pressured, 
Um, it becomes interesting, I think, to look at the question outside of Europe. And my first engagement with this question took place around the figure of Zeki Muren, born in or around 1931, and who died definitely in 1996. Around the time of his death, again, posthumously, a rather accentuated citizenship cult a rather accentuated citizenship narrative started to uh, build up around the figure of the dead Zeki Muren. Uh, it began, in my reckoning, with the oration given by the imam uh, at his burial at the, at the Grand Mosque in Bursa. Um, and it was followed up um, in all sorts of ways, um, all sorts of official state recognitions of his music and his art. And the, the idea of Zeki Muren as model citizen um, confronted me in the work of one of his better uh, biographers, and there are many, Emine Ashan. And the, the title of that book was called Örnek Yurtashte, or He Was the Model Citizen, Him. He himself was the model citizen. It, the book itself doesn't elaborate this greatly, but even in that sentence, Örnek Yurtashte, or in Turkish, there's plenty to think about here. Firstly, we've got this word Yurtash as citizen. In Turkish, you have two words for citizen, both of them with uh, subtly and complexly uh, different uh, registers and shades of meaning. The more Arabic, Perso-Arabic, vatandash, the, uh, somebody who shares the vatan, and the more Turkish, Turkic, yurtash, somebody who shares the, the yurt, uh, and, as it were, on the other hand. So already we're talking um, about a complexly bifurcated uh, linguistic and symbolic uh, space. We're talking as well, when one thinks about the state honours that he received, of somebody who the state, whilst he was alive, turned their back on. They did not like the fact that he was queer. They did not like the fact that he was ill, a very sickly figure. They did not like the fact that, that, um, that, we, that um, he sang a cosmopolitan repertoire of, of popular music. Um, so uh, this too is an interesting thing. We've got a sign of citizenship claimed posthumously, but during the the life of this of this of this figure and the life of this voice, um, this was somebody who was distanced by the state media system and rather pushed to uh, one side. We're talking, of course, um, about a voice in this situation, and it's the voice that comes to be considered. And by connection with the voice, the, the, the microphone um, that, that is um, kind of metonymically uh, attached to it becomes a particularly uh, a particularly fertile and, and powerful sign um, of that voice. We have a voice uh, that is also an extremely complex proposition, changing enormously over the course of his 50 years uh, singing career. Um, a voice that also seemed to contain a number of rather significant contradictions. On the one hand, this was a tearful, sobbing, sentimental, uh, rather wounded uh, kind of voice, um, as people, under, people understood it, as people still understand it. It was also a voice that was very much associated with qualities of politesse, um, of, civili of civility, of gentility, of uh, the Turkish, important Turkish word here is nezaket, 
of, of uh, that this is a voice that is Nazik. Um, and uh, there's something important going on in these characterizations is that the voice is not just, as it were, um, a sign, a kind of static, passive symbol of that politesse, of that nezaket. It's an agent of it. Okay, the voice operates on what it sings, the song text that it sings, that, 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 that it gives voice to, the performative environments in which it takes place, the audience uh, that that hears it, it, it it's an agent of that of that of that civility. It's a voice that, as it were, enacts what it what it symbolizes. One commentator described Sekimiren's voice as a as 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 a as a microphonic voice. So this put me in mind of thinking about of of of, of what I would want to call the microphonic citizen, the role of these star singers. Um, film stars, particularly uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, as, as, um, as these, uh, as I'm saying, microphonic citizens. One finds oneself thinking of Abdul Halim Hafiz in the Arab context, uh, Carlos Gardel in the Latin American context, a very interesting example of somebody who becomes a sign of citizenship outside of his own um, place of birth. Uh, Amalia Rodriguez, in the case of Portuguese, uh, Fado. If thinking outside Europe, one starts to be able to put together a... 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 Um, a picture of a, of, of a group of, of singers exploiting the emerging media systems of the middle of the 20th century. If we're to think about the iconicity of their voice, if we're to think about the iconicity um, of, the, of, of their microphones, I think something interesting comes to view here, um, which I'd like to describe or I'd like to, to think of as microphonic citizenship. Um, these are situations in which we are thinking about post-colonial uh, politics of transition from authoritarianism to some or another um, kind of market uh, regime. Um, we're thinking um, about these microphonic citizens as not just signs of the nation, but a particular way of inhabiting that national space, caring, uh, sympathetic, uh, sensitive. So the microphonic citizen uh, is something that uh, one could think about uh, usefully and interestingly um, when one's thinking about the middle years, the middle decades of the 20th century. What happens if we are to think about more recent times and more recent circumstances? If we are to continue this post-colonial line of thinking about uh, the musical sign of citizenship, um, what does the picture look like today? I'd like to spend the rest of, of my time Allow me just to check where we are. Discussing a uh, 
a case of the imagination of the projection of ideas about uh, citizenship uh, on a singer, uh, on a vocalist, on a voice, in ways that I think flow out of the uh, thoughts thus far. Um, and that lead us, I think, in some uh, interesting directions. So the story goes uh, as follows. Early in 2016, I was invited to participate in a workshop at Royaumont, which is a ruined abbey, perhaps some of you know it, just north of Paris. Now it's a prestigious venue for new music and new music scholarship. It was a last minute invitation following a cancellation, I guessed. It was gonna be difficult to pull a paper together at such short notice. But a concert had been announced for the evening following the workshop, simply and enigmatically entitled 99, which immediately caught my attention. Now, the concert featured French-Lebanese slam poet Marc Namour. It also featured Iraqi-American trumpeter Amir Esafar, multimedia composer Lorenzo Bianchi Hoish, Bansuri, that's a kind of Indian flute player, Rishabh Prasanna, and bassist Jerome Bolvin. Now, Safar is somebody I had known for a long time, uh, actually, by 2016. We had met in Chicago at the beginning of the American-led Iraq invasion and occupation. An established jazz trumpeter, he had turned to his father's record collection and had begun to teach himself the Iraqi maqam tradition, concentrating on santur and vocals. Many years had passed when I received this invitation, and I was immensely curious to see where this had led him. So I put my misgivings aside, hastily concocted a paper, as one does, and jumped on Eurostar. So when I arrived there, no reference was intended by the concert's title, I quickly learned, to the slogan of the Occupy movement, we are the 99%. This title, 99, referred rather to the matter of immigration in France, 99 being the number entered under département on immigrants' identity cards. It's a bureaucratic fiction, in other words, informing the authorities simply that the bearer of the card uh, was born outside France. The idea for the project apparently first took shape in a performance by Namor at the Avignon Festival in 2014. There, it attracted the attention of eminent musician and ethnomusicologist uh, Frédéric Deval, who immediately recognized Namur's potential for his intercultural music experiments at Royaumont. It was to be assembled there more or less in more or less public workshops over the course of a two-day residency. So the creative process was, in other words, supposed to be um, on, very much on display under Deval's watchful eye. Sadly, Deval himself, I learnt, died shortly before the workshop. He was not to see this particular project's fruition. Now, arriving late, I missed most of it in classic anthropological fashion, but I was soon enough brought up to speed over meals in the gloomy Gothic refectory and conversational strolls around the cloistered gardens, as and when the winter rain permitted. 
Subsequent publications filled the gaps. Local ethnomusicology students had been enrolled to document the process and had done so diligently. Hoche at the Electronics came up with five separate ambiance sonore, which is to say grooves, chord sequences, textures, um, as a kind of starting point, we learn. The non-Western instruments, that's to say Prasanna's Bansuri and Asafar's Santur, subsequently found their place in passages of tonal and timbral contrast, in the sculpting of moments of sonic intensity and their release, in the solos and duets either with one another or with the live electronics. The words, meanwhile, took shape around the theme of migration, departure and arrival, small town life as an immigrant in France, 99 as a figure simultaneously of objection and multiplicity. Namor describes his poetry as une écriture poussée, a pushed writing that, and I'll carry on translating, that privileges less the flow than the substance, wanting always to give it energy. These are his words here. Now, the pushing in question is one Namor himself seems to recognize as kind of disruptive, more about energy surges than an even flow. This derives in part from his own accented French and in part from the complex translational field his slam recitation negotiates. The word 99 itself, most notably, takes shape in the culminating rap in English, French and Arabic. With 99, the word 99 rendered respectively 99 in English or actually more accurately American 99, 99 in French and in Arabic. This delivers, if you think about it, three quite distinct, and in the case of French and Arabic, intricate metrical patterns. So, 99, and then there's a kind of triplet version of that, 99, and then, which kind of grooves across that beat, as um, as you might have noticed in my effort to render it there in an interesting kind of way. Now, in the in the rapping and in the slam poetics of this, the rhythmic and metrical implications of these of these of these three uh, translated terms here could be felt in the improvisations and the electronics around them. The enunciation of the translated terms for 99, Namur's multitude, were, one might say, generative. The performance at the end um, of this uh, workshop was remarkably tight and assured. It culminated with the song 99 is the Future, in which Namur's restless pacing around the stage gave way to seated, swaying recitation on a bar stool. The electronics slowly encroached on the voice in this song like a rising tide, eventually engulfing it. The choreography was minimal but effective, and the audience, which filled the auditorium, was highly appreciative. The audience was of the kind one often sees for new music in Paris, serious enough to make the journey out, wealthy and white enough to afford the tickets, and discerning enough to take it all in their stride. 
Namur and his fellow musicians had, it would seem, well understood Royaumont's project, the stage they were on, their audience, the press and the critics, and the stakes for their professional futures. So this was a, clearly a successful event in, in their terms. And for me, it was an impressive thing, uh, as, well, as well as a rather engaging thing to watch. Let me give you a break from the sound of my voice with some pictures. Uh, the picture here is of uh, Beirut. And to you all, and where Mark Namur started off his life, um, on the way um, via Saudi Arabia to the Jura in France, all the way to Royaumont, where this event was taking place here. Again, I don't know whether any of my listeners are familiar with this place, but it's a beautiful ruined uh, Cistercian, I think I've got that right, monastery in the northern suburbs um, of Paris, which has been repurposed as a conference and research centre for new music. And here we are at that event discussing Beirut, as you can see from the map behind. But otherwise, one is in a scene of Gothic beauty and splendour. Here are some pictures. And here is the refectory where, in true French fashion, we would spend uh, hours sitting and eating great meals and talking about what the residents of this um, workshop had, had been up to. And here is the concert itself. At this point, I want to stop and I want to show you a, uh, for about five minutes, a rather glossy um, promotional uh, video that Royal Moore made of the 99 project, and um, which will give you an idea of some of the sounds. J'ai appelé cette création 99 car c'est le numéro de commande d'origine. Tous ceux qui ne sont pas nés en France ont ce numéro. Un département fourni d'apatrie en quelque sorte. Sans attache. Un territoire dont tu ne trouveras le tampon sur aucun passeport. 99 origines, 99 langues, 99 cultures. Ici, la question identitaire est au cœur du propos. Nous cherchons à savoir qui nous sommes. La seule certitude que nous avons, c'est que notre identité est de fait multiple, complexe. Et elle s'oppose à cette identité qui se veut de plus en plus nationale, étriquée, fermée sur elle-même. Nous nous réclamons ce 99, un 99 résolument ouvert sur le monde, comme notre musique, qui puise ici son influence des macams irakiens, au ragabant de souris du fin fond de l'Inde, à la musique électronique contemporaine, en passant par le jazz ou le rap. 
puissance fut explosive. C'est le moins qu'on puisse dire. Ma mère installée sur son lit d'accouchement de fortune ne menait pas large. Ce n'était pas la douleur d'un accouchement sans péridural qui effrayait. Ce n'était pas le fameux et délicat passage du col qui la totalisait. Ma mère souffrait d'une autre peur. Elle avait peur que le générateur d'électricité tombe en panne. Peur que la sage-femme au bout de la cinquième nuit sans sommeil ne soit pas assez vigilante. Peur que les murs du sous-sol de l'hôpital ne tiennent pas sous la pression constante des bombardements. Peur que les miliciens fassent éruption plein travail pour purifier la zone comme ils savent si bien faire. Car le quartier à cette époque avait perdu toute trace d'humanité. Les hommes n'étaient plus des hommes, ils avaient des têtes de bêtes. Des têtes de bêtes brutes, la rage aux lèvres et la fièvre au front. Des têtes de spectres mal famés. Et voilà qui nous ramène dans un pays de feu et de larmes. Un pays au bord d'un éclatement sanguinaire en quête d'une paix qui se dérobe et se méconnaît. Un pays qui a fait parler de lui de la plus horrible des manières. Ma mémoire est entourée de sang. Ma mémoire a sa ceinture de cadavre. Ma mémoire est entourée de sang. Ma mémoire a sa ceinture de cadavre. Zakilatim ou la tahabetam. Zakilatim ou Zamnara Benjoufa. Zakilatim ou la tahabetam. Zakilatim ou Zamnara Benjoufa. des sortes de structures ouvertes capables de, de créer voilà, un dialogue, de créer des, des connexions avec d'autres sonorités, avec d'autres harmonies et d'autres... So, openness and dialogue note with the two words that we uh, that we finished with there. Let me just get back to my slides. Openness um, and dialogue. Now, um, ethnomusicologists associated with the project were correspondingly uh, quick to engage with this rather uh, dynamic uh, performance. Um, contextualizing the project in the, the shift from high to low in French cultural programming initiated by Mitterrand's influential culture minister Jacques Long in the 1980s, underlining to the inspirational work of ethnomusicologist Frédéric Deval, who I've already mentioned. Deval was evidently inspired by ideas about orality and poetics deriving from Paul Zumthor and ideas about community from Jean-Luc Nancy. In the light of them, he inaugurated a program of transcultural music making at Royaumont early in the 2000s. These featured musical dialogue between distinguished world musicians with a growing emphasis on what he referred to as parole rhythmique. 
he evidently uh, saw rhythmic recitation as a kind of cultural universal, a fertile meeting ground for rappers, hip-hop artists, slam poets, and oral poets from around the world. So one of the things um, that one is immediately um, forced to recognize is that one is talking about a highly uh, curated scene um, in which um, uh, some kind of musical citizenship is being put on stage, highly curated and highly curated also in the context of a well-known history um, in which um, the French state um, has uh, found ways um, of um, putting um, the, the colonial uh, Arab world um, on, um, on stage. I was going to talk a little bit more about this later, but I think I'm probably not going to have time, so I should go back to that picture. So writing in the immediate aftermath of the concert, and it would seem with Namur's own words still reverberating in his head, Luigi Parlati describes the residency in more excitable journalistic terms, concluding thus, and again my translation here, once the 99ers united in Avignon, after having declined the complexity of a multiple identity, Marc Namour invites the public to join the 99 without crossing any border, without the need for papers, without needing to adopt any of the romantically already overused definitions of citizens of the world. As writer Patrick Chamoiseau puts it, true citizenship in the world is multi-citizenship in multiple places. And 99, now part of this multiplicity, speaks to us of that. End quote. The citation, the reflexivity, the rhetorical mood, the insertion of yet another elusive abstraction, multiplicity, and particularly the use of the word true in the final sentence drew my attention. Firstly, they strongly underlined the lessons I felt I'd learned a few years earlier from Zeki Muren. They suggested that an idea about musical citizenship takes shape in subtle and often opaque language circulating between musicians, critics and institutions. They underlined the performative and rhetorical dimensions of this language about citizenship, the centrality of a persuasive and richly complex voice onto which all sorts of things might be projected, the audience of sensitive listeners, the role of the critics able to make and nuance the case for musician as citizen, citizen as musician. The word true in Parlati's quote here, bundled up and half hidden as it was in the Chamoiseau quote, could not, the moment I noticed it, have done a clearer job of underlining the unstable nature of this semiotic terrain and the turbulent elements, complex elements of desire and fantasy a play upon it. Secondly, it made an emphatic claim. Um, actually, I'll tell you what I'm going to do here. If I may, is just come back into the into the room. And hopefully at this point, you can still both uh, hear me and, and, uh, and see me. Yes, thank you, we can see you. Um, 
so secondly, it made um, this whole case seem to me to make, uh, and, and, and Parlati's quote uh, in particular, seemed to make an emphatic claim in citing Shamozo for the post-colonial perspective, the matter of citizenship now demands. This puts firmly to one side the logic of the multicultural nation state, making bureaucratic and procedural space for its new migrant citizens via a regulated array of, quote-unquote, multiple identities. It also underlines the limitations of a Kantian cosmopolitanism, a citizenship of the world purportedly floating above such constraining and parochial identities, the goal of all true intellectuals, supposedly, but in fact a badge of distinction for Europe's privileged classes. The call in Parlati's quote for the recognition of um, Parlati's quote via uh, Shamoiseau, uh, ventriloquizing Shamoiseau, as it were here. So the call in this quote for the recognition of, quote unquote, multiple citizenship, sorry, multi-citizenship in multiple places, implies that those holding more than one set of travel documents, or perhaps none at all, lie at the heart of the new map of global culture making. So thirdly, it raises a sharp question in my mind, this, this, this quote and this whole scene here of kind of citizenship fantasy, if you will, raises a sharp question about otherness and citizenship. Well-worn debates about recognition and redistribution have significantly qualified the terms in which we might now imagine citizenship in the multicultural state. These have contested the nakedly racist logics that have historically governed immigration policies in Western Europe and North America and framed discussions of integration. But recognition and redistribution are often and perhaps inevitably at odds, as the long-lasting Nancy Fraser and Axel Honneth debates of the 1990s suggested. Compensatory and inevitably inadequate efforts to acknowledge historical injustice on the matter of citizenship feed white resentment and nativism, as we know. The dominant language of citizenship in the West has consequently become primarily a discourse of exclusion. Who needs to be kept out? What they, quote unquote, need to do to prove their worth and be allowed in. Namur's 99 Catalanis Neuf, according to Parletti, rejects an ascribed multicultural identity. It speaks by contrast to, to follow the, the hints of his interpretation of this, it speaks by contrast of the emergent and unstoppable logic of the multitude, the too many who have slipped between two numerous cracks in the nation state order, who now press more and more insistently on the world. How does one manage being on the receiving end of this kind of language? What does it feel like to be drawn into these kinds of fantasies about citizenship? They become more and more demanding after all. What options as a migrant or a refugee or as a settled citizen facing unexpected inquiries into the legitimacy of that citizenship are available? One is in these situations, and to think only of uh, my own country, the UK, over the last 10 years or so, one is called as a migrant or a refugee to prove one's worth, not just bureaucratically and administratively, but culturally and emotionally. One's called on to master the cultural, symbolic and affective codes of citizenship, to understand and perform competence in the culture wars, to duck and weave around the racism that is never far away from the surface of today's populism, to find the resilience and skill to deal with the legal consequences of multiple citizenships straddling two, if not more, nation states.
The need to approach the broader question of citizenship and its affective and symbolic registers from a post-colonial perspective, a perspective amongst other things that demands uh, recognition of these kinds of pressures and impossibilities has never been stronger. The specific cases, working towards a conclusion now, of Zeki Muren and Mark Namur benefit from being framed in such a perspective. They help us understand how citizenship narratives get forged at an oblique angle to the nation state and circulate in zones of ambiguity vis-a-vis -vis the global north. It helps us understand how they are grounded in claims about otherness of one kind or another, Zeki Muren's queerness, Namur's Arabness in a French context, and in the demand for a widening of the margins of national participation. This is familiar enough territory. But they also complicate this perspective, involving as they do voices and listeners, changing media and their acoustics, and conflicting claims about what the arts, music among them, are considered capable or not of doing. Performance, the performativity of language in particular, may well, at a general level, have been central to post-colonial critique, viz. the work of Gayatri Spivak and Hobi Baba in decades gone past. But the specific questions that are interesting me here and that I want to push out in your direction are, who makes the musical citizen? How and why? And what can we gain from a rather more fine-grained and focused understanding of what musical performance and musical listening might set in motion? To conclude, we get a picture uh, here of, of, of why uh, historically this cliched uh, image of the composer citizen um, should now be uh, waning in its power, and indeed why, um, certainly with uh, reference to the Western classical music tradition, the Western art music tradition, um, and Western debates about democracy and citizenship, th this particular sign of, uh, of this particular musical sign of citizenship should be under so much pressure, why it should be behaving in such strange ways. I think we note uh, from um, this, um, from these cases, thinking of Zeki Muren and, and Mark Namur, that something is to be learned from the more complex formulations of this sign in the post-colonial state and amongst um, and in situations um, of migrant art and music making uh, in the West. And I think we may uh, slowly move, uh, taking accounts of these cases, of these scenes, we may slowly move to more sustainable, equitable and interesting narratives of citizenship in music and of music in citizenship. We may, in short, yet make something of the citizen musician and something more than empty cliches um, and do more than sigh at Beethoven. Thanks very much. 
Thank you very much, Martin, for that excellent talk. Very, very um, informative, interesting, and provocative at times, um, and elegantly delivered. Thank you again. Uh, now is the time for question and answer. You can click on the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen and post some questions. There are already a couple that are floating in, uh, and everybody's invited. And uh, we had a really nice turnout tonight, so please uh, don't hold back. Um, here's one from Philip. Um, Ask, it seems like the 99 conference was intended to deflate the political connotations of the number on the immigrant documents. Can you elaborate on that? That it was, that it was intended to deflate the... Deflate the political connotations of that number as it appears on immigrant documents. Um, I, I, I would... So we've got a, a situation here in in in, in which uh, the kind of claims that are being built around this performance uh, are of um, of a rather uh, inflated kind, um, uh, shall we say? Here is what multicultural citizenship in France should look like. Um, what I think the more critical voices around this conference are doing is exactly what, um, Philip, exactly what you're suggesting here, which is to, um, which is to suggest the, the limitations um, and the constraints of this, uh, to acknowledge, I think, the heavy curation of these scenes of migrant art, um, to do something to say um, that this that this sort of putting uh, this staging of migrant civility is something that the French state has got a, a long and rather unfortunate and rather complicated history uh, of. Um, so what I'm he hearing here is on the one hand uh, a kind of new music curatorial um, um, taming of this scene. So remember, we're talking about 2016. We're talking about the immediate af aftermath of the Bataclan massacre, which is only months before. And actually, I was attending that conference with um, a number of, of my um, Parisian ethnomusicology buddies were in a state of shock about one of their number having been caught up in that uh, dreadful massacre. Um, so the, 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 it was it was potentially, I, I would have said, a very difficult and very complicated scene. Um, so I think that we're talking about forms of curation which are designed to, in some sense, uh, kind of tame them, in some sense, constrain them. We're talking about kinds of critical activity which are, uh, which are on the one hand, um, I think, sort of energetically um, optimistic and want to read these scenes in a more kind of radical um, and open-ended kind of way. And so we have Luigi Parletti, who's a very good young French ethnomusicologist, voicing Patrick Chamoiseau, who's a um, a, um, a, um, a post-colonial writer and theorist from the uh, from the Antilles, if I've got that right. Um, giving voice to a rather more um, um, kind of energetically optimistic reading of this. And then you've got other writers, and Julia Oleksiak is somebody who I, whose name I should have mentioned, who's, who, who says, well, hang on a moment, let's just sort of try and understand this a little bit more in its kind of political and curatorial context um, and see something a little bit more constrained here. So I think I agree, sort of long answer there, but I think I agree with the implications of your question there. Thanks very much. Well, there's another question that's related to one I was going to ask. We know a lot, and you've spoken about um, 
the role of the voice and ergo of the microphone um, in amplifying a sense of citizenship or nationalism. We know this obviously through like Unkulsum, for example, is the voice of Egypt. And we have many, the voice of X, Y, or Z. We even have song genres called Salt, and we have Soto Pahara uh, record label. Um, one question would be what would be the role of instruments themselves without voice in promoting a form of musical citizenship? Um, uh, even outside of the traditions we've just been talking about, including even Beethoven, for example. Um, and Philip asked in particular, what does Emir Safar's Sontour or his trumpet play in this? Or any of these other instruments, like the uh, ambiance sonore that the, the, one of the artists was producing? And how do the, those interact with the voice itself? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's imagine voice, first of all, in the kind of expanded critical sense of the term. A voice isn't just something that isn't just noise that comes out of somebody's mouth. I mean, and particularly when we're thinking about voice, the signification of voice in, when we're talking about democracy and citizenship and, and, the, and, and the way in which uh, voices um, uh, might function as kind of screens on, on, on which these, these kind of fantasies of democratic participation and citizenship might get played. Uh, so we're not just, obviously enough, we're not just talking about, about the air and the vibrating uh, um, uh, um, columns of air um, um, coming out of or being set up by a particular person's vocal um, apparatus. Um, so uh, you mentioned... Uh, Uncle Thum. Um, I, I would want us to think about the relationship between Uncle Thum and Abdul Halim Hafiz, and and why um, Uncle Thum might have come to play a very um, powerful role as a symbol of the of the nation, uh, but how Abdul Halim Hafiz, uh, in relation to her, I think, comes to play a rather different role, a more sort of sentimental kind of a role, a more affective kind of role. And it's this that gets, I would want to suggest in the Egyptian context, still today, is the, is the, it's that that gets entangled with um, these citizenship fantasies and projections. Um, we're always talking about situations, and I think the Abdul Halim Hafiz, uh, the case is, is a rather interesting one, about moments of complicated moments of authoritarianism or transition from authoritarian to something else. Um, so something about the, the about the symbolic work that they're doing is about transition and transformation. But to think about authoritarianism just for one for one moment, um, I, 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 it strikes me um, that um, one of the things that instruments do, and particular instruments do, and particular instruments do with a certain kind of urgency is stand in for the voice when the voice is understood not to be able to, as it were, speak or sing itself. Um, when um, putting words to songs um, can be construed as political and cause all sorts of issues and all sorts of problems. Um, and where uh, and one thinks about musical scenes in which th that kind of significatory capacity or power is being handed from the voice to a particular instrument um, in order to, as it were, kind of ventriloquize it or kind of veil or sort of half hide what everybody knows is being said. Now, I think the absolute a kind of classic and vital case study of this, at least in the the, 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 the scenes that I have bumped into, is Orhan Genjabai in Turkish Arabesque. So here you've got somebody who was occasionally giving voice to quite inflammatory sort of revolutionary sentiments in the 1970s at a time in Turkey when it was just, you know, very, very difficult to do that and get away with that. But how often in 
the art of arabesque is he handing over, as it were, is he delegating that vocal power to his instrument, which is the saz, which is the, the, the long-necked uh, lute. Again, many of you uh, people listening might be familiar with that. So th this capacity of instruments to, to take on that ventriloquizing uh, role does seem to be of, uh, of uh, kind of semiotic um, importance and, and significance. Absolutely. Brilliant answer. I like that, especially the Orhan Kanjibai. Uh, I remember one of your own pieces refers to this ventriloquism, as it were, between the voice, the actual voice with language and the instrument itself. I think it's a very powerful metaphor. Also, it's interesting to think in terms of Um Kulsum, despite whatever qualities we might attribute to her, as a, as an emblematic symbolic of the megaphonics of the state, where Abdul Halim, who was coterminous with her, he died just a couple of years afterwards, it was much more of the microphonics and more nuanced in, in different things. So, um, again, I don't want to get the Egyptians in the audience upset um, by saying one was better than the other, but they're definitely uh, Um Kulsum had much more of a megaphone. Um, uh, uh, as does Sabah Fekhri, for example, in Syria, and there are other examples of that. Um, so she was famous for, for being able to manage without a microphone. I mean, this was always, as it were, the big thing. You know, she didn't need that microphone. Whereas Abdul Halim Hafiz, by contrast, was was kind of perversely famous for not being able to manage without that microphone. You know, it was often said, you know, without the microphone, the voice just wasn't there. Absolutely. Leila Kharan has an interesting observation, noting that salt, of course, in Arabic means voice, but it also means vote as an action of citizenship in a democratic process. So that's an interesting uh, spin on what we've been talking about. Yeah, I, um, I, I, hadn't, um, I hadn't picked up on that, but of course, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely crucial. Uh, it makes, I think, sort of blatantly obvious and clear what, from the time of Rousseau, um, I think in, in Western political uh, discourse, we've always um, understood, you know, which is the voice, um, the voice representation, um, the voice is democratic re representation. Rousseau, of course, was fascinated by this question. Um, you know, it's a, a, a sort of understanding that representation in terms of this, this the sort of kind of primal utterance of the democratic uh, collectivity. Um, but, the, but the question and your observation there, I think, sort of pushes kind of quite hard on that question of what does the voice represent? What is representative about a voice in these contexts? What, what is its function as a sign of representation? Because it's not just representing in the passive sense of that. It's not just representative of something. It's actually representing um, in the sense um, of a kind of claiming um, a certain kind of political uh, space. And I think that somehow kind of linguistically neatly uh, captured, I think, in, in salt, as, as, uh, as you say there. Yep. Thank you. Uh, here's a question from Latif Bolat from Turkey, who asks, um, who, who claims that uh, globalization may have changed this issue a bit. Um, now, without moving anywhere, people feel that they are citizens of another place quite easily. Lots of Turkish, young Turkish people already think that they're more American citizens and European than they are Turkish. Once they immigrate to foreign countries, it changes them significantly, and they usually cannot adjust and, uh, that easily. So the question is, does globalization create, uh, does it erase national national feelings across the world or or not? This is, of course, an yeah. old debate. And what is your view on this in terms of music? 
Um, yeah, well, thank you, Latif, and hello. It's been a long time since we've spoken. Um, it, it's so I think that the, the case of Mark Namor, I think, is is a, is a case study in um, both in the possibilities of globalization for imagining citizenship in much more expansive and connected terms, um, and also a case uh, study in the in the in the problems and the difficulties of, well, multicultural citizenship, migrant citizenship. Um, there are huge kind of matters of privilege at play here. And Mark Namur, um, his passage, relatively privileged, I guess one could say, in the total scheme of things, but by no means easy and straightforward via Le Civil War Lebanon to Saudi Arabia to a very small industrial town in the French uh, Jura, um, and where he encountered as a young man growing up, I think, all of the, exactly all of the, the problems that you expect young men of Arab descent, I think, to encounter. Um, so uh, gradations of the power and privilege are, I think, um, at play. Globalization for some people, as far as citizenship uh, is concerned, is a massive opportunity. Citizenship is for sale um, if you've got enough money um, to buy citizenship of, 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 um, of various places for business reasons and for tax uh, reasons. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are, who are just um, not only never going to be able to travel, but are never going to be able to get um, travel documents um, in their hands. And somewhere in the middle, you have the very well studied by anthropologists world of migrant families for whom citizenship is a matter of very complex strategizing. You know, you think of the extended family, who's got a citizenship, which is going to allow certain kinds of mobility for some, certain kinds of movement for some, certain kinds of abilities to save um, and, and work in others. Um, so globalization has certainly changed the terrain. And this is where I think that the Mark Namur uh, case study, um, I think, serves as a rather interesting point of reflection um, about both what about both the opportunities that globalization uh, offers for expanded um, conceptions of citizenship and as well some of the limitations perhaps just in the in the in the shadow of my of what I've just said is, I think, of course, the specter of, of racism is the specter of xenophobia. Uh, one cannot, you know, Trump may have left the White House, but the mini Trumps are still alive and well across Europe. And I think that we in Europe are going to be dealing with this for many, many years to come. Uh, but the question of citizenship is, 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 is now becoming quite blatantly a question of race, quite blatantly a question of how, of, of how, quote unquote, we keep people out. So from that perspective, uh, um, I, I, I don't. I see globalization as a, a, a negatively complicating um, issue here. Very good. Thank Thanks. you for that. I remind the audience members that you can ask the questions in the Q and A box by clicking on the button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Uh, we still have some time for questions, and uh, right now there are no open ones. So I'm going to ask another question that occurred to me when you mentioned the the role of ethnomusicologists and other scholars in curating some of these events. I'm wondering what is the role of scholarship in general in authenticating uh, musical citizenship or in delegitimizing it in some ways uh, because of our often in uh, unaware or subconscious alliance with marginal figures or sometimes with figures of, of authority because of uh, easy access to centers of power in the musical worlds that we study. So it can work in both ways. I'm wondering what you might think about that. I think um, that's, a, that's a great question but, um, because the, the question of citizenship has become, um, has become rather a, 
an interesting one in, in ethnomusicology. If you look back over at the, at, the, at the monographs that we've written over the last 10 years and, and the journal special issues and so on and so forth, this term citizenship comes up uh, over and over again. It seems there's a preoccupation um, on the part of ethnomusicologists with citizenship. Um, it has something to do with our um, state of anxiety um, about the question as by and large liberal beings in an increasingly illiberal age. Um, I think it has something to do with uh, migration um, and the, yeah, the questions about migration, the pressures that the issue of migration puts on questions of citizenship, I think have come to, to feel um, rather difficult and complicated and, and painful. Um, I think um, too, um, as the, the particular kinds of scholars that 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 you and I are, and and maybe um, various people listening are as well, is that we don't just observe and listen; we participate. Anthropology is about um, about participant observation, and and has been for a very long time. Um, we are, we are not uh, bystanders. Um, I think in this, um, the, the role that we have all come to play as academics in the Western world, I think, face pressures to get out of the academy and to do supposedly useful things uh, in the outside world. Um, intersects with, I think, the kind of everyday musicianship that people like you and I um, have just been doing all of our lives, which is finding interesting people to talk to about music, play music with, learn music from, and that in turn, I think, intersects with, um, I think, as time goes on, the the role that we feel that we can play in curating ourselves, to use that dreadful word, uh, curating um, kind of spaces and trying to sort of shape the discussion um, about, let's say, migrant art uh, and culture rather than just be passive recipients of it. All of this, I think, kind of pushes us into a position of um, of involvement. Um, I'd like to slightly distinguish that kind of sensibility towards involvement from this word activism, which I hear um, over and over. Um, I think where many of us, I think, rather naturally find ourselves is in a state of reflective involvement. Um, Perhaps rather than the than than the kind of um, programmatic sort of um, sense of engagement, which is sort of I'd associate with this word uh, activism, and this I think gives us um, a lot of grounds uh, to reflect. Um, for some, um, some people are throwing their hands up in the air and just saying this is just. You know, particularly when we're thinking about migrants and refugees at the moment, and migrants and migrants and refugee culture, that this has just all got too hot to handle. This is just too painful. This is too difficult. You know, at the end of the day, to quote a phrase, let ethnomusicology burn, let anthropology burn. Um, I, I, on the other hand, feel uh, not ready to assume that position. Um, I, I think. It's always too soon to say. I think it's certainly too soon to say in, in this situation. And that are hanging in there and hanging back and hanging about and making ourselves useful in this situation is, is 
it might not be much, but I think that it is uh, worth doing. And I think that it's inflecting our scholarship in positive and creative ways as well. That's a really great answer. And it's, of course, there's no easy response to how we define the line between involvement and activism. Um, and some might want to conflate the two. And, and as I think you rightly point out, it's, it's useful to think of them as separate. I know in my own work, uh, I've, I've been not exactly on the let's light a match and burn the, the scholarship, but I've been very reticent to hitch my uh, scholarly wagon to the plight of Syrian refugees and, and musicians in particular. Um, but recently I had a conversation with some Syrians who said, we want to work with you to document what we've been going through. And you have access to your megaphone and, they don't realize it's not a really big, it's really a microphone of academic publishing, but also to help, let's work together. You have resources, you have a university that has millions of dollars in resources and cameras and, and microphones and equipment, and we don't. So let's work together to do projects that are both creative, documentary, and even scholarly. So that's made me rethink my involvement, um, whether we call it activism or not, is, is uh, beside the point, I think, um, because it's coming from them as much as it might be coming from me. And this raises, again, these questions of voice, agency, and so forth that have been around in our academy and in anthropological debates since the you know the late 70s, uh, very prominently. Um, so I think you raised some really excellent questions there and responses. And I had a question that came up by, um, Jesse, how do we understand citizenship of a music style? In other words, do we gain a sort of citizenship by intimately understanding and musicking in a particular style? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think, uh, so first of all, we're dealing, <laughs> that, that's, that's a really great question because it's so, so tricky to, to answer, but I think the trickiness is, is very apropos here. We're talking about two tremendous abstractions here. I mean, you know, music is one enormous abstraction, uh, and citizenship is another absolutely enormous abstraction. Nonetheless, uh, going right back to Beethoven, we seem to be convinced in our own minds, at least those of us who've grown up in the Western musical tradition, that these two things do sort of naturally fit together. Um, and one can point to the 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 old-fashioned musicology of the days of yore uh, that, that that's for whom this was a very obvious and a very natural question you know where was the french citizenship of of um of um of verdi you know sorry the, the italian citizenship of, uh, of verdi where you know um uh, in, in, in what ways is that to be seen on the surface of his operas? Um, in what ways um, do, 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 are we to connect Beethoven's symphonies with sort of emergence, A, German, and B, universal citizenship, sort of cosmopolitan citizenship? Um, it's difficult to overstate just how, how, how self-explanatory those kind of questions were a um, hundred years ago, uh, and right up to, I would suggest, 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, in the case of Beethoven, I would say it's only really now, over maybe the last 10 years, that we've just started debunking the whole question of Beethoven's politics, you know, and the role of the ode to joy as a symbol of universal citizenship. You know, people are pointing out this is all very weird, actually. It was a German drinking song, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was... Um, so... 
all sorts of questions that looked terribly kind of natural uh, a while ago now seem immensely strange and, and contorted. So I think that my approach here is is to try and understand the effort to connect citizenship with, with music as a kind of fantasy projection. It's a kind of projection. Somebody is saying this person or these sounds or this voice or this particular situation is a sign of citizenship because, and what's interesting, I think now, as this as the kind of Beethoven myth has unraveled, is that they always have to say how and why, okay? Because it's not self-evident. So in a sense, this is what we're looking at, and which makes it quite difficult, I think, to uh, to talk about where the citizenship is in the music. Now, just where I I switched off the 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 running kind of promotional video, it was was quite interesting that this was the moment at which Mark Namur was starting to talk about openness and participation and reciprocity. Now, these are the key terms here, um, aren't they, with which we tend to think about, about modern citizenship, openness, reciprocity, um, sort of sharing. Um, it seems like an easy question as to... As, as to how and why music might be a practice of openness, reciprocity, and participation. But actually, I think when we get down to the real details, it gets a little bit more difficult to say exactly where the sharing and the reciprocity and the participation is. Um, music is about drawing lines, is it not? It's also about drawing lines of exclusion. It's also about drawing lines of status. It's about making all sorts of separations between insiders and outsiders. We've got all sorts of questions of ability. Who's actually able to hear and able to hear what? And what kind of educational opportunities give people a capacity to hear this in music or that in music? So the question of what seems like a perfectly reasonable question, and it is a perfectly reasonable and a, and a perfectly good question, it, the moment one starts to get into it, it melts away. And I think that's really all that, all that I can say is I don't think we're any closer. I don't think after decades of thinking about this in ethnomusicology, we're any closer to really knowing what we mean by participation in music. All of these terms like participation, groove, co-feeling. I think the moment that you start to look at these in a torop, just to bring this back to the Arab world, you know, which is a good case study of this actually, because the moment that you just start to say, okay, so where is this actually happening? It melts away. Sorry to 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 give you what sounds like a kind of damningly negative answer to your question. It's not meant in that spirit at all. It is just to say that this is it is precisely that sort of phantasmatic kind of nature of the question of, of where the citizenship is that, that interests me here. Thanks, Jesse. Of course, that's also not only uh, phantasmatic, and, but it's also an opening to even more scholarships. Any of the students who are attending this talk will have some uh, food for thought uh, as they go forward in their projects. I have a couple more questions that have just come in. Uh, here's from Deborah Caption. What is the difference between citizenship, as you are using the term, and the iconic and shifting relationships between style, aesthetics, and nation? Do we want to reify citizenship, which is literally a legal relationship between person and state, at this moment of populism? What does that allow and what does that preclude? You've just mm -hmm. answered these questions, but she'll press send anyway, she says. So, uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. Thanks to Deborah. That that uh, that um, that certainly does. You can see how that's connecting with um, with my line of um, my general line of thinking here. So I think that that's absolutely 
uh, spot on. Um, you know, it, we are talking about, I think, a, a, a signs that always were uh, unstable or symbolic linkages that always were um, unstable and that, and that now, for various reasons, the reasons that I've been trying to think through here um, have become even even more so. Um I mean, one, 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 one way, one shade of that, of that, of that question, sorry, of that question, which, which strikes me is, 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 is the hyphen between the nation uh, and the state and, and the kind of pressure that some of these musical signs put on that. And if we are to think about, because this may be a common point of reference for, for many people listening, if we are to think about Uncle Thum and uh, Abdul Halim Hafiz, um, those two singers, I think, um, occupy a rather different kind of position in relation to that hyphen, do they not? With Uncle Thum, I think... Um, understood as speaking for the nation and Abdul Halim Hafiz in some senses understood as speaking for or in some kind of relationship to the state. And I think that this has something to do with the with the ways in which at least to, to the extent that I'm able to follow this and understand this, it's Abdul Halim Hafiz who gets dragged into the discourses of citizenship, of the, the discourse of the Muwatin, whereas perhaps Uncle Thum doesn't. And that 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 interests me. Uh, that interests me here. Um, that there is some. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've gone off track with your question uh, th there. But um, yes, I'll say I'll, I'll, I'll just stop talking now. Maybe you can get me back on track with your question. Hopefully, I've said something that speaks to something that you're interested. Uh, I like the idea of the, the implicit comparison between Zeki Moran and Abdul Halim Hafiz, and both of whom were ill. Uh, Abdul Halim Hafiz leveraged that sickness, Bilharzia, um, as part of his sort of sentimental uh, effective regime um, in ways that were celebrated in Egypt, whereas in a very different understanding of Vatandash uh, in Turkey or, or Yurtdash, which is a more, more fun word, I think, it reminds me of, of yurts. Um, uh, that didn't really play into the the megaphonics of the state in the same way. Yeah. Um, so, yes. Uh, so I mean, one could wax uh, psychoanalytic analytic about this in in, um, in in rather lame ways, but um, it, maybe one could and one should say that there is something about about the about the lack in both of these voices, uh, that, that lack of health. I mean, these are signs of life, aren't they? But they are hardly signs of vitality. You know, these are not signs of, 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 of kind of burstingly vibrant life, quite the opposite. There is something about the sickliness of these voices, about, about the need for these kind of prosthetics um, that, is, that, that says something, that says something about Mediation. It says something. Obviously, obviously, it says something about mediation. Um, obviously, I think it says something about circulation. Um, but maybe too, it says something about vulnerability. It says something about care. It says something um, about the the kind of disclosure um, of self, citizenship, intimate citizenship. Some have defined as the dialectics of the of, of self disclosure, mm -hmm. and so you know the the idea that these might be, this might be a performance of self which is 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 involves 
um, displaying weakness and vulnerability is 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 significant and i would suggest it's significant of course abdul halim half has managed to leverage it um hugely and zeki muren interestingly was rather ashamed of his illness and 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 it, it only really kind of emerged as a sort of trope of that voice actually after he had died so there's a contrast there but i think that's that's where there is some um kind of overlap in these two particular kind of microphonic citizens yeah I think gender and sexuality would also play a very important role in differentiating as well as articulating these two cases. And that's a longer discussion than we have time for. I want to end with the question from Neil, who raises another really big one, which is like, oh, okay, how about Wagner, uh, who after Beethoven even more thought of himself as a responsible and yet at the same time a revolutionary citizen? What would we make of Wagner in this larger conversation? Or is that something that's just... Too big to bite off at the moment. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. And you know, I mean, I think that I would I would suggest that Wagner is just the is the terminal crisis point for the Beethovenian discussion of the composer or a citizen. I mean, it is the point at which that particular bus has been driven off the cliff, has trundled down the valley and burst into flames at the bottom of it. And of course, there may be avid Wagnerians here and um I, I wish that I uh, I could have my former, uh, uh, my predecessor as King Edward Professor of Music, John Dethridge, who is one of the, the great um, voices for Wagner uh, studies um, uh, around, who would have a very different picture uh, of this. But I mean, as far as this discussion um, is concerned, uh, I would have said the question of whatever Wagner may have had to have uh, said about himself um, and whatever the Wagnerians may have had to say about Wagner and as far as the kind of mainstream discourse in the history of Western art music is concerned, Wagner is where the, the, where the sign of the citizen composer becomes irretrievable. You know, once you've turned in that particular, uh, uh, once you've turned down that particular alley, there is no coming out of it. No turning back, right? <laughs> no turning back. Um, that's a, a crude answer, and I'm sorry. I haven't thought enough about it. I, I, I'll devote some thought to that definitely so thank you for the next talk i think we've run out of time and we could go on and on uh, with a fascinating topic i want to thank you again on behalf of the institute and of the Air crossroads studies program this concludes our lecture series art and performance in the middle east past and present uh thank you again professor martin stokes for an enlightening evening uh, we really wish we could have you with us and we hope to bring you back in person sometime soon and thanks to all of our audience members we had a large turnout uh, initially and uh and thanks to the institute again and their team for hosting this tonight and uh, good evening to everybody. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye everyone. Thanks John. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.